Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. When a COVID vaccine is approved, who gets priority? It's just not a, uh, a slam dunk that the old people would get a high priority right behind healthcare workers and essential workers. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We look at how the government will decide. Plus, a Canadian court ruling says the United States is no longer safe for refugees. We'll have a story on the implications of that ruling for asylum seekers at the northern New England border. And later on in the show, work commuters, no longer making the trek from New Hampshire to Massachusetts, are still getting taxed. Now that that dynamic doesn't really exist anymore, that I'm solely in New Hampshire and haven't stepped foot in Massachusetts since before COVID, I see it more as taxation without representation. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We begin this show at the U.S.-Canada border. This summer, a court in Canada ruled the United States is no longer a safe place for refugees. The court condemned the treatment of asylum seekers at U.S. detention centers and said refugees should be allowed to pass over the border. Independent producer Lauren Madelon reports on how this could change the migration routes in New England. This is Tamra, a highly educated accountant from Central Africa. It was late in the night. In 2018, Tamara drove north on Interstate 89 to the Canada border, where Highgate Springs, Vermont, meets St. Armand, Quebec. She wanted to enter Canada to apply for asylum. Tamara had entered the U.S. legally, but her visa had expired. She asked that we not use her last name or identify her country of origin for her protection. I get into the border. I go into the offices. I told them the truth. I told them my whole story. Tamara told Canadian border agents that she was between a rock and a hard place unable to remain in the U.S. and afraid to return home where internal conflict is ongoing. She says she pleaded for the Canadians to let her in. Because I had nowhere else to go. She didn't know then, but she had no chance of being granted asylum. Tamara's request was denied. She wasn't allowed into Canada. And they brought me back to the U.S. border. Tamara was sent back because of a U.S.-Canada treaty called the Safe Third Country Agreement. The treaty says that both Canada and the United States are safe for refugees. So when someone seeks asylum in either country, well, that's where they have to stay. And if they try to cross, like Tamara, they're immediately sent back. But all that could change now. Canada's federal court has ruled the country can no longer do that. The court states that returning refugees to the U.S. is now a violation of Canada's human rights charter, and it specifically cites refugees are at risk in the U.S. I think it's an astounding ruling, and I think they're absolutely correct. 
Aaron Jacobson is a professor and director of the Immigration Clinic at Vermont Law School. That a very close ally of ours, another country that's been known for its human rights protections, is recognizing that this country, that the United States, is no longer a safe place for people, that we're not honoring our international and domestic obligations to protect refugees. We contacted both the U.S. Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security to comment on that categorization of the United States. DOJ declined comment. DHS didn't respond at all. The ruling hasn't taken effect yet. But if it goes through, this could impact the safety of refugees in another way. Because they know they'll be turned away at official crossings, some use clandestine routes to avoid those checkpoints. Between January and July of this year, Canada's government says more than 3,000 people have already crossed illegally into Canada from New England and upstate New York. They trudge through forests and ford rivers, risking injury and death. Jacobson hopes the end of the treaty will remove the incentive to take risks on the way north. There's legal checkpoints and background checks, and they're not putting their lives at risk to sneak into Canada. It's muy triste. ¿Por qué? Porque Javier is a farm worker from Mexico, living in southern Vermont. Pues es lamentable. Es muy lamentable la pérdida de, de muchos. The loss of people is sad, Javier says. Statistics aren't available for deaths on the northern border, but Canadian police say in the last few decades, a handful of people have died in an area of upstate New York, bordering Vermont. Meanwhile, Tamara is still in Vermont. She received a work permit, and she's working again as an accountant. And the people of Vermont are so, so good. Tamara's work permit is not open-ended, so she's applied for U.S. asylum. She knows it's no guarantee, which is why she says the court ruling in Canada means so much. I know I still have an opportunity or a plan B or a country that will welcome me in case things don't work out in the United States. That welcome is also not guaranteed. Canada's government, anxious to avoid complicating its relationship with the U.S., is appealing the ruling. The treaty remains in effect until that appeal is settled, but advocates have been lifted by a court ruling that says there is, quote, no principled reason to return refugees to the U.S. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lorne Madelon. Patients coming off a ventilator typically take hours, even a day, to wake up as the drugs that help them tolerate the machine wear off. But with COVID, some patients are still out days, weeks, or longer after they're off the ventilator. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has the story of a patient who experienced what some call persistent coma. Leslie Katita said yes twice when doctors from a Mass General ICU called asking if she wanted them to take extreme measures to keep her husband Frank alive. These conversations about whether to let Frank go or try some experimental drugs and treatments were in late March and early April. By the end of that month, Frank's lungs had recovered enough to come off a ventilator. But then Frank did not wake up. It was a long, difficult period of not just not knowing whether he was really going to come back to the Frank we knew and loved. Um, so it, it, was, it was very tough, very tough. And prompted more questions about whether to continue life support. Leslie wrestled with the life doctors asked her to imagine. 
if this looks like Frank's not going to return mentally, is that something that you and he could live with? Every day, sometimes several times a day, Leslie Katita would ask Frank's doctors, what's going on inside his brain? Why is this happening? The candid answer was, we don't know. Dr. Brian Edlow is a critical care neurologist at MGH. Because this disease is so new and because there are so many unanswered questions about COVID-19, we currently do not have reliable tools to predict how long it's going to take any individual patient to recover consciousness. And more importantly, says Edlow, what their mental state will be if or when they do. This spring, as Edlow watched dozens of Mass General patients linger in this unconscious state, he reached out to colleagues in New York to form a research consortium. They're sharing data to determine which patients recover, what treatment might help, and why some patients aren't waking up. There are several potential reasons for this, one of which is that we are having to administer very large doses of sedation to keep people safe and comfortable while they're on the ventilator. Frank, for example, was on a lot of sedatives for a long time, 27 days on a ventilator. Edlow says some of these patients have COVID-related inflammation that may disrupt signals in the brain, and some have clots that have caused strokes. So there are many different potential contributing factors, and the degree to which each of those factors is playing a role in any given patient is something that we're still trying to understand. And how many patients end up in this prolonged sleep-like condition? Dr. Jan Klassen, a neurologist at New York's Columbia Medical Center, is part of the consortium working to answer that question. In our experience, approximately every fifth patient that was hospitalized was admitted to the ICU and had some degree of disorders of consciousness. But how many of those actually took a long time to wake up? We don't have numbers on that yet. Klassen says he's guardedly optimistic about recovery for some of these patients. A study he published and a recent case reported by Edlow at MGH show some patients' brains respond to verbal commands while they are unconscious. Leslie Katita says Frank eventually had a CT scan. From what they could tell, there was no brain damage. And then on May 4th, after two weeks of no signs that Frank would wake up, he blinked. Leslie and her two daughters watched on a screen, making requests elated. You know, smile, daddy, hold your thumb up. It was another week before the Katitas would hear Frank's voice. We would all just be pressing the phone to our ears, trying to catch every word, and he didn't have a lot of them at that point, but it was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Frank spent a month at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. He's home now, doing physical therapy, but has no cognitive problems. The Katitas say they feel incredibly lucky. Because at one point, this doctor said to me, if Frank had been anywhere else in the country but here, he would have not made it. That doctor said virtually all of the patients in Frank's condition in New York, for example, died because hospitals could not devote so much time and resources to one patient. And that's a conversation I will never forget having because I was stunned. We did have an advocate. This is Frank. Who could have gone the other way and said, look, this guy's just way too sick and we've got other patients that need this equipment. Uh, or we have an advocate who says, throw the kitchen sink at it. And we happen to have the latter. But how long should hospitals suggest that families wait for a loved one to wake up? Many hospitals use 72 hours or three days as the period for patients with a traumatic brain injury to regain consciousness before advising an end to life support. 
Dr. Joseph Giacino, who directs neuropsychology at Spalding, says he's worried hospitals are using that 72-hour model now with COVID patients who may need more time. We need to really go slow because we are not at a point where we have prognostic indicators that approach the level of certainty that we should stop treatment because there is no chance of meaningful recovery. Frank Katita's two-week return to consciousness is an example. Giacino urges all of us to be sure loved ones know how we define meaningful recovery in case there are difficult choices ahead. The message from Leslie and Frank Katita is pretty straightforward. Wear a mask. This is nothing to be trifled with. It's an absolute devastating experience. I'm not considering myself one of those, but there are many, many people that would rather be dead than left with what they have uh, after this. Researchers hope to have the first numbers on the extent of brain injuries that result from COVID, including after a prolonged coma, sometime this fall. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. A vaccine is the most plausible way out of this pandemic. The New York Times reports there are at least 35 vaccines in development that are being tested on humans in clinical trials. Nine are in phase three, which means they're being tested on tens of thousands of people for safety and effectiveness. And the federal government has been funding mass production of a number of vaccines. A Cambridge biotech company is getting nearly half a billion dollars to... That Cambridge biotech company is called Moderna. And Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston is currently enrolling people in the phase three trial of Moderna's coronavirus vaccine. As GBH's Craig LaMalt reports, one challenge the hospital faces is making sure the people enrolled in the trial are as diverse as the population that could one day receive the vaccine. A line of people works its way through the parking lot at Brookside Community Health Center in Jamaica Plain. The big draw here is free coronavirus testing. But before they leave, everybody's asked this. So would you be interested in learning a little bit more about the coronavirus uh, vaccine research study that we're offering to patients? Brigham and Women's is the only hospital in New England that's enrolling patients in the Moderna trial. It's part of a nationwide effort to sign up 30,000 people for the study to confirm the vaccine's safety and efficacy. Dr. Kristen Price is part of the Brigham and Women's team working here at the Community Health Center in JP. We've been able to get quite a few who are interested sort of pre-register. After that, people get a call about being scheduled for an injection. With outreach like this, doctors and researchers are trying to recruit a diverse group of trial subjects. There are certain um, communities where there's a lack of trust in healthcare in general, and in particular around research studies. Researchers have found it's especially hard to enroll black participants in medical trials. And that presents a serious problem as they try to scientifically demonstrate the vaccine works in everybody. As she waits in line for a COVID test at Brookside Community Health Center, Samira Lopez of Hyde Park says she's unlikely to sign up for the trial. Probably not. It's probably highly risky. There's an urgency about getting a vaccine out there, but it's that speed that has Lopez worried about being a test subject. Yeah, well, I'd rather wait. Like, because usually, because I was talking to my aunt, she says like usually vaccines take a couple of years to develop, like before it gets to the public. And this came out like only a few months after this all started, so it's probably not safe. On a Zoom discussion among black doctors and community leaders, Dr. Paulette Chandler, an internist at Brigham and Women's, said the Brookside Community Health Center has been twice as successful signing up Latino people for the trial as black participants. 
And she said that's not because black people aren't talking about this. The discussion is happening on Twitter, TikTok, Black Talk Radio. I mean, this discussion is very live and active and people are actively resisting this vaccine. Now there are others who say, yes, I want to be a part of the solution. That's a that's a rarity, though. That issue's already been clear in the early stages of research into this Moderna vaccine. Dr. Stephen Walsh is one of the infectious disease doctors at Brigham and Women's who's working on the Moderna study. If you were to look at the demographics of the phase one Moderna study, um, the average age of the participant was 30, and it was predominantly white individuals who were in the study. Um, That's sadly very, very typical of our phase one studies. Dr. Basola Ojikutu of Brigham and Women's studies racial and ethnic disparities in research. She says in communities of color, skepticism about medical trials is born out of a history of racism. There have been these incredibly egregious events that many people talk about in reference. Like Henrietta Lacks, a black cancer patient whose cervical tissue was taken without her permission in the 1950s and turned into a cell line that's widely used in research labs today. And the Tuskegee syphilis study in which black men were misled and weren't treated for the disease for decades. On top of that history, Ojukudu says, are all of the issues of racial inequity in the healthcare system today. Then when it comes down to somebody asking you to participate in a trial, the first thing that one may ask oneself, and I think this is normal, is, well, but nobody's doing anything about these other things. So then why are we now being asked to do something, you know, that may be harmful? But she says black people need to be part of the trial to make sure the vaccine works in that community, especially since people of color have disproportionately high infection rates and are far more likely to die from the virus. It's so critical that we go above and beyond, I think, uh, to ensure diversity within these trials because of the nature of the disparities. She says as doctors recruit black people for the trial, they have to be aware of both the historical and modern reasons some patients may hesitate. We are acknowledging that that's the case, that we are taking every step possible to ensure that you will not face any of that same negative experience, that every safety measure is put into place, and that we will be as transparent as possible with data, with results. In the end, she says, if that trial data does show the vaccine works in people of color, they're more likely to take the vaccine when it's ready for everyone. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Craig Lamoltz. After the break, we'll continue talking about COVID vaccines. Specifically, once a vaccine is ready, who gets priority? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. We're moving on from who gets to be part of COVID vaccine trials to this question. What's on my mind is uh, how the state is going to set priorities for the vaccines when they become available. That's the latest question Vermont Public Radio's people-powered journalism project, Brave Little State, set out to answer. The question was asked by a Vermonter named Roger Stone. And no, he's not that Roger Stone. Stone is 79, and when he heard the federal government was beginning to discuss how vaccines should be distributed, 
he tuned in. And realized that it's really a question. It's just like not a, uh, a slam dunk that the old people would get uh, a high priority right behind healthcare workers and, uh, and essential workers. Investigative reporter Emily Corwin set out to find the answer. Optimists say one or more vaccines could be available to the public by the end of the year. Others say sometime next year is more realistic. That's TBD. But whenever it is available, there probably won't be enough to go around. Not right away. As for who gets access first, Roger Stone isn't the only one who wants to know. I'm I'm hoping that I would be on that list, um, coming from cancer and working in schools. Heidi Hopper works as a paraeducator in South Burlington's elementary schools. I, um, last year, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And although her treatment went well, and she's now one year cancer-free, chemotherapy damages the immune system. This semester, Hopper's colleagues plan to be back in schools, teaching in person, while Hopper works from home. I would love to be back in school with people, you know? I'm, I'm a people person, so... It will be very hard for me if I don't get the vaccine. Neither Hopper nor Stone think they should be first in line. In fact, almost everyone I talked to agreed those vaccines should be reserved for frontline health care workers. But after that, if there really is a shortage, who's next? Other essential workers? Vermont's elders? People with suppressed immune systems? What about racial minorities? In Vermont, black people have gotten COVID-19 at 11 times the rate of white people. Giving priority to higher risk populations would include, in this case, also looking at racially diverse communities. Maria Mercedes Avila is an associate professor of pediatrics and the health equity liaison at the Larner College of Medicine at UVM. She joins a chorus of experts who say some racial minorities should also get priority access. Children under nine who tested positive for COVID-19, of those children, 68% are children who are racially diverse. That's a very alarming statistic for the second whitest state in the country. So many groups have valid reasons to want to be near the front of the COVID vaccine line. Which brings us back to Roger Stone's question. How is this going to be settled out? Is there a committee? Is there a governor? How does that work? Sure. I'm Christine Finley, and I'm the immunization program manager at the health department. Finley is pretty familiar with this process. She's one of 31 liaisons to the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or HIP. It's the group that writes federal guidelines for vaccines. Finley represents immunization managers across the country, alongside the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Academy of Family Physicians, the Council on State and Territorial Epidemiologists, the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service. They, and 15 um, voting members, almost all of whom are doctors, break out into more than a dozen work groups to look at all aspects of vaccines, their safety, their efficacy, who should get them, when. The committee then writes and votes on vaccine guidance, which it sends to the CDC. And that's the guidance that is expected to be followed by all healthcare providers. All of the things that you just described to me, is any of that different for COVID? Um, yes, <laughs> it's a little bit. <laughs> okay. Every, everything's different for COVID. Well, a couple of things. So, For one, Finley's group has been meeting monthly online rather than the usual three times a year in Atlanta. And she says the information is coming from researchers with a speed that's altogether new. But most different is that this time a second group is doing similar work at the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine. They're focusing especially on issues of equity. And then 
somehow together these two groups will issue federal guidance? By October, they're hoping. (laughs) After that, whenever the vaccine is available, the federal government will pay for and distribute it to each jurisdiction according to population size and other factors. That's according to the CDC. Once that happens, it'll be up to people like Christine Finley to figure out how to get the right number of doses to the people at the top of the list. And whoever those people are, many will likely be getting them from UVM Medical Center, the largest medical provider and the largest employer in Vermont. I know that conversations about the fair distribution of the vaccine are already starting. Tim Leahy is a vaccine researcher and the director of ethics at the medical center. He says hospital leadership has asked the state to convene stakeholders to discuss vaccine access. I'm interested in the idea that that UVM Medical Center may have like kind of initiated this conversation. Does that do you think that came from a place of being very attentive to healthcare workers' safety, or is that like we're going to have to deal with the public and we want some guidance here, please? <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. <laughs> Leahy says hospitals don't have to deal with scarcity very often, and there will be a lot of scrutiny around vaccine distribution. Hospital officials don't want to be the only ones involved. Leahy, of course, is trained in medical ethics. He understands as well as anyone the challenges facing the committee members writing vaccine guidance. And in his mind, vaccines are different from organ transplants or ventilators. He says you can't just think about who is at most risk of dying. Because if we found out that you can't contain the epidemic without vaccinating people in their 20s and 30s who are perfectly healthy, then we have to prioritize those people because the point is to save lives. And then... Leahy brings up another complicating factor, which actually works against people like Roger Stone, the 79-year-old question asker, and Heidi Hopper, whose immune system is compromised by her chemotherapy. Almost all vaccines have less effective responses from people who are immune compromised and elderly. And so you get into this interesting conundrum where Elderly people need protection from influenza the most. They need protection from COVID-19 the most. But they're also less likely to have a great response to the vaccine. And so the ideal population-level response probably is a combination of giving it to people who are most at high risk and giving it to people who are most likely to respond. This is news to me. And the concept of prioritizing at the population level rather than the individual Leahy says it's one reason certain racial minorities should get prioritized for the vaccine. Leahy says that's different when you're talking about ventilators. At two o'clock in the morning, when two people are vying for one ventilator, you really cannot know which of those people has suffered more injustice. Vaccination is different. We know that, that race is a marker of risk of severe COVID-19, And we want to distribute the vaccine preferentially to people who are most at risk so that we can save the most lives possible. And vaccination is a population-level intervention. Ideally, Leahy says, there will be enough vaccine for everyone to access ASAP. That is still a possibility. But if there isn't, it's not really up to UVM Medical Center to decide who gets priority. It's up to the CDC and the National Academies of Science and their committees, who are in the midst of eternal video conferences hashing all this out. 
Okay, I think uh, we have everyone here. And COVID-19 include adults age 65 years and older, long-term care facility residents. Thank you. I'm just thinking about return to school and wondering if there were discussions. As seen in the left-hand figure, people with lower income occupations are generally less likely to be able to work from home and thus have a greater risk of exposure. We're going to take a three-minute break here, and then we're going to proceed to a public comment. But wait, all of this concern about who gets the vaccine first, it's premised on an assumption, one I didn't think much about until I talked to Linda. My name is Linda Goodman. I have a rare blood cancer called Waldenstrom's. It's a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Goodman is in the same support group as Heidi Hopper, the cancer survivor who works in elementary schools. Only Goodman is not gunning to be first in line for a COVID-19 vaccine. It's an interesting question that you ask, who should have priority? The question is, who is it safe for more than who should have priority? And when the vaccine came out, I would not get it initially until it had been out for X period of time, so I knew what the side effects would be. Goodman was open to the vaccine until she heard a segment on a Sirius XM radio station called Dr. Radio. That's where she learned that even though the vaccines are going through the traditional phase three 30,000 person clinical trials, very rare side effects or those affecting small segments of the population may not be understood until hundreds of thousands of people have received the vaccine. And because of her cancer, Linda says, she doesn't want to go first. Plus, she says, she's lucky. I have this amazing home that looks out into many, many acres, including water. She has a husband who does the shopping and keeps her company. She's willing to be cloistered away. But what she brought up, this fear that the vaccine won't be safe, it's more prevalent than I had understood. And it's more prevalent than doctors and public health officials like Christine Finley would like. They named uh, the whole piece about the vaccine on the federal level Operation Warp Speed. I don't think there could be a worse name that you could name something because I think that it just says, oh, gosh, they're really rushing it. And it misses what's going on. In the trials that they're doing, the standard is that you want 30,000 people in those trials They are going to have 30,000 people. They are not cutting the size of the population that that is going to be in the trials. In fact, I can send you to a website where they're recruiting for that. Finley also notes that in a poll done by the AP and the University of Chicago, only half of American adults said they would definitely get a COVID-19 vaccine when it comes out. Uh, We need to do better than that if we want to achieve herd immunity. As a liaison to the CDC working group, Finley is watching the sausage get made. And she says it's made her confident the vaccine will be safe. In the meantime, she and the committees figuring all this out are left with two contradictory but equally important mandates. One, to figure out how to save the most lives with a small amount of vaccine. And two, how to convince people to come and get it. That was Vermont Public Radio's Emily Corwin for the People-Powered Journalism Project, Brave Little State. (laughs) 
Shifting gears to schools now, the coronavirus pandemic has created major problems in public schools across New England, with many choosing to stay remote this fall or go to a hybrid model. But in New Hampshire, at least, the picture for private schools is different. Most independent schools are reopening in person. And as New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson reports, interest in them is higher than ever. Hi, Aldi. At Building Block Common School in Exeter, farm animals are a major part of the morning routine. So these are Nigerian dwarf goats. This is windy, stormy, and then Azalea is over there. She's the herd leader. Ren Hayes is the director of this private school, which focuses on project-based learning. As Hayes gives me a tour of what she calls their woodland oasis, it becomes clear this place is built for a pandemic. The 100 or so students will be divided in groups of 10. They'll spend nearly all their time outside. You get this little garden here. You get all this field space here. You get this tent, the art tent. Teachers will wear masks and face shields and use personal amplification systems to ensure students hear them. Indoors have expensive upgrades to ensure good airflow and hygiene. These are the kind of assurances that many teachers and families want before heading back to school. And with more space, a smaller student population, and fewer decision makers, private schools can do this more easily than most public schools. So families are flocking to Hayes. She says normally there is a wait list of 70. This year we have 135 on there and very, very emotional people calling begging for a spot. Hayes says parents are desperate to avoid a year of juggling work and overseeing their kids' remote learning in public school. She's had someone on the wait list call and say, look, I'll pay double your tuition if you take my kid. Hayes didn't accept the offer. One parent who got a spot early on is Chris Yonker. He and his wife considered starting their daughter in public school, but then decided... The virus isn't going to go away. It's going to be here in the fall, and the public systems, aren't gonna, they don't have it together now. I just didn't see they're going to have it together the way that we wanted to be part of. All kinds of private schools are seeing increased interest during the pandemic. Allison Mueller directs marketing for Catholic schools with the Manchester Diocese. This summer, she heard a lot of concern among parents that public schools would stay remote. Every family was talking about schools in a way that they never have before. And so we wanted to be part of that. Mueller looked at their old school buildings with big, underutilized classrooms, years of declining enrollment, and she came up with an idea, tuition discounts for new families. It's called the Transfer Incentive Program. When we announced through our media outlets around the first week in July that we were reopening full-time, that we had the transfer incentive program, we immediately saw an initial interest jump. That interest has translated to higher enrollment. Some Catholic schools are up 10%. The rules for social distancing and masks are less restrictive than what many public schools in the area are aiming for. Mueller says kids have a right to be in the classroom. With private schools, there's a big question of who gets to enjoy that right. The tuition discounts at Catholic schools make them more accessible, but still won't work for everyone. Kile Adumene is a Nigerian-American activist and single mom living in Manchester. She's advocated for improvements to the city's public schools for years. 
That district is staying remote, which did not go well for Adumene's kids last spring. So I hear parents and their choice of private school seems appealing and seems to be the best way to go. But it's not the way she can go because of logistics and expenses. Those who have money and those who, two parents and one can stay home to really check in and make sure that things is running fine, but there's money to pay for the services that they want. But those who don't have that privilege continue to fall behind and suffer and just left for the crumbs that fall off other people. Adumene says she hopes the families who stick with public school during the pandemic get just as much support to learn as others will likely get in private school. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. Chief diversity officers are in demand right now. Many companies in Boston and across the country are looking to hire diversity leaders as recent protests over racial injustice have led to calls for organizations to address their own systemic racism. But these jobs often face high turnover due to a lack of resources and support to make real lasting change. As WBUR's Zeninjor and Wameka reports, many diversity and inclusion executives hope things will be different with this current movement. Just take a look at LinkedIn and you'll see plenty of job listings with titles like Diversity and Inclusion Manager, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Manager, Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging Program Manager, Head of Belonging, Vice President, Inclusion and Diversity, Chief Diversity Officer. A growing list of local companies are looking to fill these jobs. Many people who do this work say they're glad to see that, though it's unfortunate it took the killing of George Floyd and others to get to this moment. If you're a black person in corporate, right, you're sort of saying, what took you so long? Paul Francisco is the chief diversity officer at State Street, the Boston-based financial services firm. But there's also a little bit of saying, you know, welcome to the work. Glad to have you. Glad to have you as a partner. Glad to have you as an ally. Now let's get to work. Francisco and his team guide the diversity strategies at State Street. He says one area he's paying close attention to is how employees move through the company. If we are equitable, that means that women, people of color, need to progress at the same rate as their white counterparts, right? Because otherwise there is no other explanation other than that there is bias in the system. You know, people are hiring people that look like them, et cetera. Francisco says it's important to keep track of hiring, promotions, and why people leave if you want to make systemic change. For example, on hiring, companies can try to recruit people in different ways and put policies in place to make sure there's a diverse slate of candidates. State Street has diversity goals and tracks their progress every year. They've hit some goals, but have fallen short on others. So there is a lot of pressure, but the pressure is not just for me to share her. I hope that every single person in in our 40,000 person organization feels pressure to do something and feels pressure to make change. But making change can be tough for chief diversity officers. Research shows they often aren't given the resources, authority, or support from senior leaders to make lasting change. And these jobs tend to have high turnover. That's why Malia Lazu of Berkshire Bank thinks putting people in diversity and inclusion jobs isn't enough. She says those roles tend to box people in. Because so often people are like, well, what what are the five things I can do to end racism in my company? Um, 
stop thinking that there are five things you can do to end racism in your company. And that's probably the first thing to do. Lazu says creating a diversity position is one thing companies often look to do. But if businesses are looking for a chief diversity officer to fix their racial woes, I would say my grandmother's good old saying, which is show me your budget and I'll show you what you care about. And that's really where I hope we see the business shift, not just in positions, but in positions with power and budgets. Positions like hers. Lazu is the regional president for Berkshire Bank. She oversees Eastern Massachusetts. She was a longtime community organizer and diversity consultant, and she brings that expertise to the job. But I don't oversee the HR diversity program, right? So like Malia can help and like Malia can give you ideas, HR, but HR runs HR. Lazu's role includes overseeing everything from the bank's facilities to marketing to corporate social responsibility. She's particularly focused on entrepreneurs of color. During the pandemic, she provided emergency lines of credit to small businesses. You very rarely see chief diversity officers have that kind of power. You know, positions like mine, I'm building products, so I'm going to be affecting the bottom line of this bank. Um, and more, you know, chief diversity officers should have the ability to do that. But systemic change goes beyond one person and one position. Tom Kohan is a professor at MIT Sloan School of Management. We're beyond just symbolic actions of hiring someone and creating a department of diversity and thinking that that will change the organization. Kohan says companies have been thinking that way for the last 20 years when it comes to diversity. What they need to do is hold all managers accountable and make sure every part of the business is involved in diversity efforts. He's researched this and says things might be different this time because of the anti-racism activism that's happening, even within companies. Now the diversity officers can draw on the strength of the grassroots movement to address these issues and use that as additional uh, sources of leverage to get things done. So I think there's going to be much, much more pressure for actual results. Many diversity professionals hope that pressure and the interest in making real systemic change doesn't go away. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. And we just got word that Malia Lazu has left her position as executive vice president of Berkshire Bank to, quote, expand her work building more diverse, inclusive and prosperous companies and communities. Coming up, some New Hampshire residents who used to commute to Massachusetts before the pandemic are peeved. They're still expected to pay Massachusetts income taxes while working from home. Plus, what do you do with your ripening raspberries? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Before the pandemic, tens of thousands of New Hampshire residents commuted south to Massachusetts to work every day. That meant they had to pay Massachusetts income tax. COVID-19 is, of course, now keeping many workers in their homes. But that has not stopped Massachusetts tax collectors from telling New Hampshire-based workers they still owe that tax. New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman reports on his state's effort to push back. 
Mark Lavoie lives in Newton, New Hampshire, in an old farmhouse. Pre-pandemic, he commuted into Boston a couple of days a week for a job at a public relations firm. He always kept track of the days he worked from home because Massachusetts allows commuters like him to deduct those days from their income tax obligations, or at least it used to. Lavoie got word from his accountant during the shutdown that the Bay State would not allow him to deduct all the additional time he was now working from home. And he sent me the guidance from Massachusetts that was issued in March that I was really disappointed to see and kind of angry. To Lavoie and the tens of thousands of former commuters now working from home, this is an issue of fairness. He figures it's costing him around $300 every paycheck while getting nothing in return. Beforehand, when I was commuting into the city, taking advantage of public transportation, you know, benefiting from what I saw as sort of an investment and just like being able to get to and from work. But now that that dynamic doesn't really exist anymore, that I'm solely in New Hampshire and haven't set foot in Massachusetts since before COVID, I I don't see that benefit at all. Instead, I see it more as taxation without representation. This rule change by Massachusetts is set to expire in late October. But the state is considering extending it through the end of the year. Like every state, it's scrambling to fill a sudden budget hole. Earlier today, the Department of Revenue held a virtual public hearing on the proposed extension. More than 140 New Hampshire commuters submitted public testimony in opposition, and a bipartisan lineup of lawmakers testified. Uh, This rule, uh, in my view, is anti-worker and anti-public health. That was State Senator Dan Feltis, a Democrat who's also running for governor. This is Kim Rice, a Republican state rep from the border town of Hudson. These are unprecedented times, and I want to see my constituents be able to, you know, keep their money while they're working in the live free or die state. Earlier this month, Governor Chris Sununu ordered the New Hampshire Attorney General to review the constitutionality of the move by Massachusetts. It isn't clear yet if the issue will wind up in court. It is making its way to Congress. First District Democrat Chris Pappas is co-sponsoring a bill that would prevent states from levying an income tax on telecommuters. Pappas sees it as a public health issue as much as it is a question of state sovereignty. We don't want any disincentive for folks not to stay home. And I think the decision by Massachusetts to go after New Hampshire remote workers um, is something that is not helpful uh, in that overall effort to keep people safe. It isn't clear when Massachusetts officials will issue a decision on whether to extend the tax rule. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. We close the show with a local food report from CAI's Elspeth Hay. Elspeth talks with a woman from Orleans, Massachusetts, about a shortbread made with her own homegrown raspberries. Eleanor Arsenault knows the secret to a good pastry. That's made with butter, real butter. I use a lot of real butter. She's pointing to a Pyrex casserole dish, layered with golden shortbread on the bottom and raspberry jam on top. This summer, Eleanor's selling her pastries at the Orleans Farmer's Market. But she first started baking as a young girl in Royalton, in western Massachusetts. I grew up in a very, very small town, about 2,000 people. And um, most of them had come over from Finland. And my father had a grocery store there. So I had to learn a little Finnish. And when I learned enough, then they were nice enough to give me their recipes. And so I got their recipes when I was young. The raspberry bars are Eleanor's version of a traditional Finnish shortbread. They look kind of like a Linzer tort, except without the top layer of dough. It's a shortbread uh, dough on the bottom, and then there's uh, homemade raspberry jam, and then coconuts and nuts on top. And it's very simple. 
Eleanor starts with the dough, which is mostly butter. And flour and brown sugar and an egg. And mix it up and pat it in there. And So you sort of just press it into the bottom of the pan? Yes, yes I do. Mm-hmm. And then... Then you put this, the homemade jam on. I make my own jams. I make about 10 to 15 cases. She picks her own berries, which she doesn't spray. And she makes two kinds of raspberry preserves. She likes some with seeds and some without. A jelly is clear, and you take out uh, the pulp or the seeds, and a jam has the seeds in it and part of the berries. For baked goods, Eleanor says you want the texture of the berries. She spreads 12 ounces of the homemade jam over the shortbread and sprinkles coconut and chopped walnuts on top. What you do is you bake it for 30 minutes, and then you take it out, cool it just a little bit and put it back, shut the oven off and put it back in for another 15 minutes. And that kind of sets the jam. It also toasts the coconut flakes and nuts. The result is a rich, buttery dough topped with thick, sticky jam and crisp pieces of coconut and walnuts. It's absolutely delicious. This is Eleanor's first summer at the farmer's market. She's always liked to bake. But after her husband died, it became a way of keeping busy. One of the things I was doing was baking and giving it to all the neighbors. And my son said, Mom, why don't you come down and live with me for the summer and sell it at the farmer's market? And I'm giving it a try. Local raspberries were in season from mid-June until mid-July. And they're just coming back into season for the second harvest, which should last until early October. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Elspeth Hay. We'll have a link to Eleanor Arsenault's recipe for raspberry shortbread with toasted coconut and walnuts at our website, nextnewengland.org. This story comes from CAI's Local Food Report. It's edited by Vicki Merrick and produced at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And that's a wrap today. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, GBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. 